There we go. So, last night, we were talking about confidence. Conf- how, do we, how do we develop confidence in our faith? And if you remember, confidence, I said, comes from really two different sources. It comes from external confirmation, and it comes from internal confirmation. I want, and that's where I want to start this morning, and then I'm going to move on to some other things. But the um, question is, how do we get external confirmation? How do we get internal confirmation? And um, to, to try to make it as simple as possible, we get external confirmation um, really by opening our eyes, <laughs> by studying, by learning. By, by doing the difficult work of asking good questions and seeking good answers. Um, that's how we get external, commu- uh, external confirmation. It's just, and, and, and I'm going to talk about this more here in just a second, but one of my concerns as an educator and as a minister is the number of disciples, not even like college-age disciples, just disciples in general, that are really unwilling it's not that they're unable, they're just unwilling to do the work, to, to do the difficult work of going deeper into their faith and, and, look, and opening their eyes and seeing the external confirmation for faith. So that's how, that's how you get external confirmation. Well, what about internal confirmation? Um, internal confirmation, I think, is really a Holy Spirit thing. I really do. I'm, I'm convinced of that. If, if you're a Christian, then one of the things that you believe as a Christian is you believe in the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit working within you. And I believe that internal confirmation comes as a working, as an outworking of the Holy Spirit within us. And so how do we get internal confirmation? Well, that's through really old-fashioned things like prayer and worship and community, being a part of a community of faith. Um, in other words, living the life, walking the walk of faith, and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit's work within you. Um, And so these two things together, I think, are necessary for us to arrive at confidence in our faith, that we're doing the work of studying, we're, we're, we're going deep into our faith, but we're also opening ourselves up. Ephesians chapter 5 says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're opening ourselves up to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives by doing things like worship and community and prayer and all those types of Christian disciplines, okay? So I, I promised you um, kind of uh, another point up here on external confirmation. Um, the two most important things that a person, um, uh, the two most important questions, I guess, that a person can ask is, what do I believe about God? Does God exist? And does God want something from me? Um, And then secondly is, what do I believe about Jesus? And uh, so I talked a little bit about the God piece um, last night. I want to talk about the Jesus question this morning. Um, and how do, you, how do you arrive at external confirmation uh, in regards to Jesus? Well, that's a big topic, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, 
really, if you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, though, you might want to just write that down. It's a good chapter for you to know. It's a good chapter for you to look at. I think it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes out of his way in that chapter to say that without this one thing, your faith is worthless. Your faith, the word that's used sometimes is futile. Do you know what this one thing is? you know what Paul says this one thing is? The resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives you a little hint there. He gives you a little, actually it's not a little hint, it's a big hint. That without the resurrection, your whole faith falls apart. And so when I, when I teach my students, when I teach things like apologetics, which I'm going to get into here in a moment, one of the things I really try to emphasize to my students is the resurrection is really the most important thing that we could talk about as Christians when we are affirming the gospel. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else kind of matters. Right? If Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else really matters. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Paul says, none of this matters anyway. So it, it, it really hinges a lot on the resurrection. So I want to take just a few minutes and talk about the resurrection. And uh, when, I, when I talk about the resurrection to skeptics, or frankly to Christians who are struggling in their faith, I adopt what's called a, a minimal facts approach. This isn't something that I invented. This is something that's it's out there, and many scholars and authors have talked about this, the same sort of approach. But a minimal facts approach, remember last night, me and my face mask, basically, like the best arguments are arguments that say, here's a thing, <laughs> here's a thing that exists that we all can see, um, so how do we make sense of this thing? Right? So a minimal facts approach to the resurrection simply says that to a skeptic. It says, okay, here's a list of things that we can all agree on. These are things that exist. What's the best explanation for these things that exist? Okay? So a minimal facts approach isn't even starting with the Bible. A minimal facts approach is just starting with facts that are undeniable and asks the skeptic, what makes the most sense of the facts, okay? So the way that I typically do, this, typically do this is I talk about four or five minimal facts that a skeptic has to explain. And uh, Alex, you, or is it Alex, or Kyle, sorry, not Alex, Kyle. You might remember this from years ago when I was uh, uh, talking to the high school group because this is my main way that I talk about the resurrection. So what are these minimal facts? I'm just going to write them up here going to use single words, testimony, grave, disciples, and church. There's maybe some more that I could add to it, but I'm going to keep it simple. So these are the minimal facts. First of all, testimony. Um, there's really no doubt, even amongst the most diehard skeptics, that the Bible exists, <laughs> okay? You'd have, to, you'd have to make a pretty ridiculous argument to say the Bible doesn't even exist. Now, sometimes, and I've, I've, I've actually made this argument with many skeptics through the years, okay? And usually when I get to this first point, there's an immediate objection, and they'll say, well, I don't believe the Bible. The Bible, they just made the story up. 
I don't, I don't accept the Bible. So I guess your first point is null. But they're misunderstanding what I'm actually saying. I'm not arguing that you have to believe the Bible. I'm arguing that you have to believe the Bible exists. Okay? I think we can all agree that the Bible exists. And so when I say testimony, here's all I'm saying. The disciples, the early disciples, believed that they witnessed something. Right? Are you with me so far? I mean, that's not a controversial statement. The early disciples believed they witnessed something. They believed that they witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. This testimony is very early. 1 Corinthians 15, probably written just a handful of years after Jesus' life and resurrection. This testimony is very early. Really, no reputable scholar believes that the New Testament account of Jesus' life was written much more than 40, 50 years after Jesus actually lived. Even very skeptical scholars like Bart Ehrman acknowledge that this notion that the Bible was written hundreds of years after Jesus' life is just foolishness. So early testimony exists. The disciples believed that they saw something. And this testimony is kind of surprising testimony too. If you look at the earliest accounts of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is first witnessed in his resurrected body by women, a group of women, which in those days would have been a very controversial way, especially if you're trying to start a new religion. Okay, That's not the way you would go about founding your new religion. So you have early testimony, you have surprising testimony, you have kind of controversial testimony. And that's all, as, as a person interested in arguing for the resurrection, that's the only point that I'm trying to make. Can we at least agree that the early disciples thought they saw, or at least said that they saw something? Okay, so that's the first point. The second point is the empty grave. And the only point that we're trying to make here is that we, we could be very confident that Jesus was crucified, you could actually go to non-biblical sources, in fact, that talk about Jesus being crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. I don't even need the Bible to establish that claim. Outside historical resources establish that claim. So, and, and again, you won't find, you'll find some, but you won't find too many skeptics that will go so far as to say Jesus of Nazareth never actually lived. Um, those people are called Jesus mythicists, and they're, they're really not to be taken seriously. Um, Jesus, it's, it's a well-established historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth exists, and we have testimony of his crucifixion. And we also have, um, we, we also, I think, can take it as, um, uh, as fact that the grave was empty. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because the disciples were saying some very surprising, controversial things about what happened to Jesus after his crucifixion. They were saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And the fact that the body of Jesus was never produced and no one ever actually went to the grave and said, y'all are idiots, he's right there, he's in the grave. We like, so there was never any sort of body that was produced once, Jesus, once Christians started making these claims about Jesus being resurrected from the, from the dead. So all I'm saying is the very non-controversial thing that we don't have Jesus' body, that the, the grave was empty. And the Gospels actually go so far as to, to give the address of where Jesus was buried. They actually say Jesus was buried in a well-known rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, so it's not as if they were trying to hide where Jesus was buried. Third point here is disciples. And the only point that I'm making here is, it is obviously the, the truth that something happened with the disciples um, changing them from this kind of ragtag group that um, was apparently hiding for their own life on the night that Jesus was crucified 
to when you read the book of Acts and you read the, the accounts of the early church history, these disciples are all of a sudden now, um, you know, literally turning the world upside down. They're suffering for their testimony. They're being tortured for their testimony. They're being killed for their testimony. You have the Apostle Paul, maybe I should put him in parentheses, is maybe the, the best example. You have Paul going from a religious terrorist, a religious zealot who is willing to drag men and women out of their homes, have them arrested, have them killed in some cases, um, becoming such a radical convert to Christ. Now, here's how radical Paul's conversion was. If his conversion was superficial, he would have just gone from being a religious zealot attacking Christians to maybe becoming a religious zealot attacking anyone who disagreed with Christians, right? But that's not what happened with Paul. Paul goes from being the one who was persecuting Christians to being the one who is actually willing to be persecuted on behalf of Christ. That's remarkable. I would go so far as to say that's perhaps miraculous. Um, so you have this, these disciples um, uh, under threat of torture and death. None of them say, oh, you know what? We just made that up. Sorry, our bad. Um, you got us. Uh, you never have any sort of reverse testimony like this. If you're forming a conspiracy, this, this has to be one of the foolish conspiracies ever, ever formed. Um, because everybody that formed this conspiracy um, maintained their testimony up until the point of death. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. Um, I could talk more about that, but I want to move on. The fourth point here is the church. Um, and again, uh, most skeptics will say, well, how does the church actually verify the truth of the resurrection? I mean, Islam exists, and you're not Muslim. Uh, Hinduism exists, you're not Hindu. Just because the church exists, why does that mean that the resurrection is true? And you know what? That's, that's a valid point. That's a valid point. All I'm simply arguing here is, is a, it's a very simple fact. We have historical precedent going back centuries that when movements like Christianity, when they start, and then the leader is killed, shamefully killed, that brings about an end to that movement, okay? Even under circumstances where, you know, in the first century, if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher, you would routinely gather about disciples who would follow you and, and, and learn from you. But when that rabbi died, even under the best circumstances, when that rabbi died, his disciples dispersed, and they would find new rabbis, new teachers to follow. What you have with Jesus, though, is the exact opposite of what we would expect. During Jesus' life and ministry, he had a very small group, very small group of followers. But after his life and ministry, his group of followers don't disperse. They actually spread out into the entire world and make more disciples of this Galilean rabbi. And that's just weird. That's just not what we would expect. And the skeptic has to account for the fact that here now 2,000 years later, over 2,000 years later, this obscure Galilean preacher still continues to not just capture people's attention, but actually change people's lives. You can't just dismiss that. You can't just pretend that that doesn't exist. You can't just pretend that billions of people over 2,000 years have all just fallen under this mass delusion 
You understand what I'm saying? And so how does a minimal facts approach work? It basically works this way. I, I lay these facts, and I could explain them in, in greater detail, but I'm trying to keep it a little bit short. Um, I lay these facts in front of a skeptic, and I say, here's the facts as they are. The church exists. The disciples exist. Their transformation exists. The empty grave exists insofar as, you know, we never had the body of Jesus produced. Um, and early Christian testimony exists. These things objectively exist. You explain them to me. Offer your best explanation of these four facts. You know what they typically will do? What they'll typically do is they'll, they'll try to attack these facts in a piecemeal fashion. They'll say, well, here's why we can't trust the testimony. And I say, well, okay, that's your argument for the first point, but how, how does your theory actually address all four points? Or they'll attack the church. You know, Christians, it's just this mass delusion, it's just whatever. Um, okay, well, that's, that's how you address the church, but how do you address the other three points? The, the best explanatory theory is the theory that's going to explain all four points as simply as possible. The more complex your theory becomes, the less explanatory power it has. And that's what skeptics have to do. Skeptics have to have three or four different conspiracies layered on top of each other in order to explain all four of these points. And my argument is simply this. The best explanation for the minimal facts that we have is that Jesus, in fact, did raise from the dead. And that is improbable. I recognize that's improbable. Um, no Christian anywhere is saying, oh yeah, resurrections happen all the time. Why are you so surprised that Jesus would raise from the dead? That's not what anybody says. We all acknowledge that the resurrection of Jesus is improbable. The resurrection of Jesus is miraculous. But just because something is improbable doesn't mean that it's impossible. If you would have gone back 500 years ago, and if you would have told a person living in Europe at the time, you know, 500 years from now, there's going to be someone driving an automobile uh, on the surface of the moon. They're going to get in a, a metal ship fly to the moon, walk around for a while. We're even going to take a car up there, and we're going to drive around on the moon. Then we'll get into this, this, this contraption. We'll fly back to the surface of the earth. They would have burned you at the stake for being a witch, okay? Um, because obviously that's not going to happen. Obviously that's impossible, but of course we know that it's not impossible because it happened. And so the person that just typically hears what skeptics do, typically skeptics will say the resurrection didn't happen. Why? because resurrections don't happen. Most of the skeptics in your life, that's probably their knee-jerk reaction about the resurrection. They're not actually even going to think about it. They're not actually going to consider it, because that's just silly religious mumbo-jumbo. Okay? And my pushback to that is, hold on. Let's actually think it through. And if we actually think it through, do we have a competing theory that satisfactorily explains all these facts. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't know if, if, uh, I don't know if this is the right format for this or whatever, but I'm, I'm willing to entertain if you have any questions about this or if you want me to clarify anything. I, I can pause before I move on to the next thing. Is there, is there anything that I can clarify for you or help you out with on this? Yeah. Like, how do we 
What kind of evidence do we have for the way they end up leaving their lives out? Aside, you know, I mean, there's the scriptures, but how would you kind of answer that? Like, oh, I don't believe that in Acts or whatever. Right. Well, we, we, have, we have evidence even beyond the book of Acts, even beyond the New Testament, about the early spread of the gospel among the disciples and about... Um, the stories of the disciples as they would spread the gospel as far as India on one side, Africa on the other side. Now, I always tell students you have to take some of these stories with a grain of salt because some of these stories are, um, you know, exaggerated claims. So they'll take something that happened, so-and-so was martyred for their faith, and then they'll add some rhetorical flourishes on top of that. And so you've got to take a little bit of that with a grain of salt. But one of, one of the best testimonies that, that I know of, and I love using these examples with skeptics, come from Roman historians. And Roman historians testify to the fact over and over again that Christians, very early on, first century, second century, that Christians were willing, and in some cases eager, to be martyred rather than to recant what they believed as Christians. And so... Um, I think the evidence tilts in our favor because there, there simply are no, te- there are no accounts of someone saying, you know what, it was a conspiracy, it didn't actually happen. Um, and at times the Romans are very frustrated with that. Like, why are they, Because it was typical, here's the thing, it was typical in the first century to be a pluralist when it came to religion. Much like it is kind of today in our culture. Uh, like, yeah, I believe what you, whatever you want to believe, but as long as you believe what you believe, you also need to believe what everybody else believes too. Like, that was very typical in the first century to be a pluralist when it comes to religion. But Christians were, were frustrating to the Romans because Christians wouldn't abide that. Christians are like, no, Jesus is Lord, period, end of sentence. And that's why Christians were sometimes even called atheists in the first century. Not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't believe in the gods, um, and so they were called atheists because they only believed in one God. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers the question perfectly, but, um, but again, I lean on early testimonies, even outside. I try, when I do, when I try, when I talk to skeptics, and sometimes this makes Christians uncomfortable, but when I talk to skeptics, I try to quote the Bible as little as possible. Um, and it's not that I don't believe the Bible, I do, um, but they don't. And so I try to rely on things like logic and reasoning and also historical data and historical testimonies that might exist outside of Scripture because the minute that you quote Scripture to a skeptic, they're immediately, doop, tune you off. Um, and so that's, that's why I like, if, if you want a, a good book on the resurrection, some of you want to maybe study this a little bit deeper, um, there's a great book called The Case of the Resurrection of Jesus, and it's written by a guy named Gary Habermas, um, who's a professor in Virginia. And it's, it, it really is the very best book that I've read on the resurrection, and it's written in such a way that it doesn't matter if you're a high school student, college student, it, it doesn't matter. Like it, It's very, very readable and a great resource to look at. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. 
So it's a good question. Here's, here's how I would respond to that. Let's, let's take something like Islam. Islam is a historical religion, but it is not a religion that is grounded in a historical event. Um, so what I mean by that is Islam, and I would say the same thing about Hinduism um, and most of the world religions, they're really more philosophies than they are histories. Now, there is history related to Islam, you know, and, and Muslims will tell you the history and the stories related to Muhammad, but Muslims, they don't build their religion on sort of miraculous claims about the things that Muhammad did. Um, the, some Muslims would go so far as to say the only, there's only one miracle in Islam, and the miracle of Islam is the Quran. Um, and so they're not building their faith on historical event or a historical claim the way that Christians are. And that, frankly, is one of the things that makes Christianity distinct. Um, because our faith is built on this thing that either happened or it didn't happen. Christianity is not a philosophy. Now, there are philosophies related to Christianity, clearly, okay? I teach philosophy, and so I love to talk about Christian philosophy, but Christianity is not a philosophy primarily. Christianity is a, it's a belief that is built on a historical event, and that's why you could do this sort of forensic analysis, historical forensic analysis of did this event happen or did this event not happen? And that's, that's not really relevant to something like Hinduism or Buddhism or even Islam um, because they're not, they're not uh, saying the same types of things as Christianity. It's a good question, though. Any other questions? Okay. I want to switch gears here. I want to talk about in the time that I have left, this, this hopefully won't take super long. Um, but I want to talk more kind of practically, both this morning and this afternoon. Um, and I'd love to continue to have these conversations here about you know, external confirmation for the faith, because I, I literally teach a whole semester's class on this. Um, but I also want to talk more practically, like, how do I how do I how do I become a public Christian insofar as how do I advocate for my faith, defend my faith to those who ask questions or maybe for the, to those who challenge my faith? Like, how do I do this? Um, and so I want to start um, with, I think, one of the more important verses in the New Testament related to sharing your faith. And that's found in 1 Peter. Some of you will know this passage. Maybe some of you won't. Um, but I want to read it again because I think this passage is so foundational. This passage is so formative. Um, it says this, this is 1 Peter 3.15. Now let me give you the context a little bit of 1 Peter. Um, Peter was writing this letter to Christians who were struggling with the public aspect of their faith. Okay? Um, these Christians were not, they were not the movers and shakers of their society. They were not the influencers of their society. And so they were struggling. 
Some of them were struggling with persecution. Some of them were struggling with just abuse or neglect. Um, And so they were struggling with the public aspect of their faith. And so, so much of 1 Peter is to encourage these Christians in that particular... I would encourage you to read 1 Peter sometime if you haven't lately. Just just read it beginning to end. Um, Because it's written to encourage Christians with this public aspect of living their faith in Jesus. And he says here in chapter 3... But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Um, I'm going to read it one more time so it really sinks in. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I want to just make a few points from this verse about the public aspect of our faith, okay? This this verse is sometimes interpreted as being a verse that is about apologetics. And this word apologetics, many of you have heard that word before. I've I've used it a couple times already. Um, But this word comes from a Greek word, the Greek word is apologia. What does that word sound like to you? What English word does that sound like, huh? Yeah. And the words are related. When we apologize, we're doing more than just saying I'm sorry. Apologizing isn't just saying you're sorry. Sometimes that's how people understand it, but that's a misunderstanding, or it's not a sufficient understanding. When you apologize for something, you're really offering an explanation or you're giving your reasons. So here's what happened. I said something that was offensive to you, and now I need to apologize. But I don't just say, hey, man, I'm sorry. I also need to explain, like, what were my reasons for saying that? Like, where did that come from? I need to own that. I need to explain that, okay? So apologizing is giving your reasons, giving an explanation. And it goes back to this Greek word, apologia. Apologia was a legal word. If you were brought before a court of law and charged with a crime, you would have to give your legal defense, your apologia. This is why I'm innocent, or this is what actually happened. Uh, What I've been accused of is false. So you'd have to give your apologia. And 1 Peter says... That when it comes to following Jesus publicly, you may have to give your apologia. Matter of fact, it's likely that you'll have to give your apologia. That's what he says here in this verse when he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. The the NIV kind of obscures the word a little bit. They, They translate it as to give an answer. But the word there is actually apologia. Give your reasoned defense when anybody asks you. Um, So this verse is about, again, public testimony, public defense of what you believe and why you believe it. And there's a few things that Peter wants us to know in this verse. The first thing is this. It starts with discipleship. That's the first thing he says out of the gate. He says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
What does that mean to revere Christ as Lord? Now, let me put it this way. There are, di- there are two different kinds of truths, okay? I'm going to write them up here. Um, Here's one truth. What goes up must come down. Okay? The truth of gravity. Here's another truth. My favorite dessert is ice cream. Which is true. It's true for me. It may not be true for you, but it is true. So here's two truths. What goes up must come down. My favorite dessert is ice cream. So when someone says Jesus is Lord, what kind of truth claim are they making? This is the participation element here. So what what do you suppose, what kind of truth claim are they making? What what kind of truth claim are they making? Yeah, I would argue that at least historically, (laughs) right, when... And, and certainly in the New Testament. When the New Testament says, hey, guess what? Jesus is Lord. That's not, a, that's not a matter of personal opinion. It's not like your favorite dessert is ice cream. It's making an objective statement. It's either true or false. But it's not true to me and false to you or true to you and false to me. It's either true or false out here. <laughs> okay? Either Jesus is Lord or he's not. Now, here's the struggle that you and I have, though, living in our culture. Our culture has turned claims about Jesus and claims about faith in general into this type of truth. Oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. That's fine. So you're a Christian? Yeah, I would expect you to say that. That's fine. No, I'm not not a Christian, so Jesus isn't Lord for me. But you're welcome. Yeah, believe that Jesus is Lord. That's fine. And so we read 1 1 Peter 3, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And I worry that sometimes we read that in this way here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've made Jesus my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is, is Lord of my heart. That's not at all what Peter is saying. What Peter is actually saying, let's go back to last night, external and internal confirmation, right? What Peter is actually saying is, you have to have this internal confirmation that Jesus is Lord. So it has to be, it has to be more than just something that you say, it has to be true to every part of you. And that's in the first century when people talked about their hearts. Now, when we talk about our hearts, what are we talking about usually? We're talking about our emotions, maybe our passions, right? My heart goes out to you. That's not really necessarily how first century people understood the heart. Your heart was the totality of your being. So when it says, revere Christ as Lord, make, make Christ Lord of your heart, that meant your entire being was centered around this fact that Jesus is Lord. And, you know, one of my favorite ways to illustrate this, when, when am I done, Drew? Whenever, man. Whenever, okay, all right. Um, what, one of my favorite ways to illustrate this is, um, so we, we just, my wife and I, we did some remodeling and some redecorating of our house. We, we, we painted several rooms. We, I've been on sabbatical, so I've had way too much time on my hands, and I've just always got a paintbrush in my hand now. So we're, we're doing some remodeling of our house. Now, when you do stuff like that, though, one of the things that you also have to think through is redecorating the house. Where do your pictures go? Do they look right now? Where the, should we put them where they used to? Like, you have to think through your, your wall decorations, okay? And you spend a, spend a lot of time at Hobby Lobby and places like that. So, um, 
So, you know, for, for several days, I'm walking around the house saying, well, this, this picture used to be on this wall of our bedroom, but now it doesn't look quite right, so we, should we put it somewhere else? You're just trying to figure out where everything fits. Now, imagine, imagine that through some circumstance, my family and I, we inherited Michelangelo's statue, statue of David. Are you familiar with this statue? Okay. Um, it's, it's literally priceless, right? Literally priceless. And now my family owns it. It's ours. What do we do now? Um, this statue, it's big. Uh, it's um, uh, kind of R-rated. Um, uh, it's like, what, what do we, do we put it in our living room? Um, you know, it's definitely not going in the girls' bedrooms. Um, it's, it's, our ceilings aren't quite tall enough in the basement. Like, what do we do with this statue? Well, you know what most people would do if this, under this weird circumstance that they would inherit Michelangelo's statue of David? They would probably have to move. <laughs> they would, or they would literally design a building or design a house around this statue. That's how precious it is. That's how priceless it is. And when it comes to setting apart Jesus as Lord of your life, it actually looks a lot like that. A lot of us were frustrated because we're just trying to figure out where Jesus fits. You know, we're like me walking around the house with this, with this picture. Does it go on this wall? Does it go on that wall? I don't know. I'm not sure where it fits. And a lot of us, when it comes to Jesus, we're just trying to figure out where does Jesus fit in my life? Does, Jesus, does he fit at school? Does he fit at work? Does he fit at home with my family? Like, where does Jesus fit? But when you revere Christ as Lord, you have to ask a different question. You don't ask, where does Jesus fit in my life? Instead, you begin to ask, how do I redesign my entire life around Jesus? It's a much different question that you have to ask. How do I renovate my entire life so that Jesus is at the center of it all? That's what Peter is saying. Revere Christ as Lord. If you're going to give reasons for your faith, it has to start with your own discipleship, where you have placed Jesus at the center Here's the second point. Get my notes here. Um, my second point is this. It starts with discipleship. Um, this isn't going to be super profound, sorry. That's my handwriting is horrible, I'm sorry. Um, it's not optional. That's my second point. It's not optional. He... Again, think about who he's talking to here. He's not talking to, to college students in a philosophy class. He's not, he's not talking to, to well-educated people at all. He's not talking to powerful people. He's not talking to well-read people. He's talking to normal, everyday people, and he says, hey, you need to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. It's not optional. This isn't something that's just for people like Chad Ragsdale who've studied this for years in my life. It's also for, for everybody. It's for people like you. It's for people like your parents. It's for people like Drew. It's, it's for all of us. We need to always be prepared to give the reason. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is if you go back to the verse, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And the word here for reason is the word logos in Greek. Now, I don't know how many of you have studied rhetoric. Maybe you took a speech and communication class, something like that. Um, but logos is sometimes 
contrasted to pathos. Now, pathos is appealing to emotions. A lot of commercials on television are based on pathos appeals. We want you to feel a certain way, and if you feel a certain way, you'll go ahead and purchase our product. Okay? Pathos appeals are fine. There's nothing wrong with a pathos appeal. Um, but that's not what he's talking about in 1 Peter. He's talking about a logos appeal. Logos is a reference to logic, to reason. It goes beyond emotion. And it's actually talking about, here's the, the actual thoughtful reasons why I have this hope. Um, now, if this isn't optional, if this isn't optional, that we always need to be prepared, the two pieces of advice that I would give you are simply this. Care enough about your faith to study it. Care enough about your faith to study it. Pick up a good book. If you don't know what a good book is, ask somebody in your life, like your, your pastors, your friends, ask them what a good book is. Ask me. I'd be happy to give you a list of books. Um, but, but care enough about your faith to study it, to learn about it. How are you going to answer a skeptic's question if you yourself haven't dealt with some of those same questions? The second thing that I would tell you is simply this. Know your story. Know your story. These Christians that Peter is addressing, they didn't have Amazon.com. They couldn't get on, they couldn't order five books on Christian apologetics. No, but what did they have? They had their own story. Here's what I've witnessed. Here's what I've experienced. They knew their story. They knew their testimony well. And so my question to you is, how well do you know your own testimony? How, how well do you know your own story? If somebody asks you, hey, why are you a Christian anyway? Why do you do all that weird stuff? Why do you go to church? Why do you go to that retreat? Why, like, why do you do these things? Like, do you know your story well enough that you could tell, the, that you could tell them something more than simply, well, I don't know, it's fun, Okay, well, that's not really a compelling thing because I can have fun in any number of different places without going to church. Um, I don't know, I grew up that way. Okay, well, that, I didn't grow up that way, so I'm not sure why that's a, a, a great argument for why I should be a Christian. Like, it has to go beyond just how you feel or how you grew up or whatever. Like, there has to be something tangible, substantive about why you're a follower of Jesus. So, study your faith, know your story. Here's, here's the third thing. So, starts with discipleship. It's not optional. It's also contextual. Notice Peter doesn't say here, hey, go out and start some good debates. He doesn't say go out and, you know, um, uh, try to win some arguments. No, he says... When someone asks you about the hope that you have, make sure that you're prepared to give your reasons. And what that means is it's always contextual. And by contextual, I mean it depends on the person who's asking, right? And that's what I'm going to talk about this afternoon a little bit, just some different strategies and approaches um, that we can take. But apologetics, giving your defense... It's always contextual, and it always starts with listening, listening to the person who's asking the question, trying to figure out where they're coming from and what their objections to Christian faith really are. Um, the, the other thing, too, is um, this assumes 
that there's something public about your faith. I remember talking to a student years ago, a student who ended up coming to Ozark and graduated from Ozark. Um, but I met him in high school. Um, I met him at NYR, which is this camp out in Colorado. And uh, he was complaining to me one day. He was a senior, and I'd known this kid for a few years. Uh, but he was complaining to me one day because he was a senior getting ready to graduate, and many of his friends and family, they knew that he was planning on coming to Ozark, and he was wanting to go into youth ministry, and he had made all these decisions. And he was complaining to me. He's like, I just don't feel like it's fair. I'm like, well, what's not fair? He's like, well, I'm a senior in high school, and I'm not any different than anybody else, but I feel like everybody's watching me. I feel like everybody's looking at me. I feel like my friends are watching me. My family's watching me. My youth minister's watching me. I just don't think it's fair. And I looked at him, and I said, well, what in the world did you expect? I mean, you've decided to go public in your discipleship and public in your commitment to following Jesus, even following Jesus into ministry. What did you think was going to happen? Of course people are going to watch you. Of course people are going to take note of your life. You should be happy about that because that gives you the opportunity to testify. See, if you're going to be a public follower of Jesus, people are going to watch you. They are going to take note of you. They want to find out if you're real or if you're fake. Um, and you say, well, that's not fair or whatever. I'm a sinner just like everybody else does. I have the same, same hang-ups same hang as everybody else. Well, yeah, that all may be true. But if you're following Jesus, then people are going to take note of your life. And we have to be prepared for people to ask us then, why are you a Christian anyway? And if you're a Christian, why should I be a Christian? Like that comes with the territory. Here's the fourth point. It's done in the spirit of Christ. Peter says, closes out this verse, he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. Now, what he doesn't say is, he doesn't say soft pedal the truth. He doesn't say, hey, people are going to disagree with you, and so if people are going to disagree with you, then just kind of take a step back, and you know, we don't want to offend anybody, we don't want to step on any toes, like that's not what Peter says. Sometimes that's how it gets interpreted in our world today, right? Like we don't want to, we don't want to offend anybody, we don't want to step on any toes, um, we don't want to be too obnoxious, we don't want to be obnoxious enough to declare that something is true, like... Because in our culture, if you disagree with someone, that's interpreted as you hating them, which I think is tragic. Um, but that's not what Peter says. Peter says, no, when you're advocating the truth that Jesus is Lord, when you're doing that, the manner in which you do that matters. You, you advocate that Jesus is Lord, but you do it in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is. Jesus was a person who came into the world full of grace and truth, John chapter 1. That's how Jesus came into the world, balancing grace with truth. Jesus never compromised on either. And I would argue that as Christians living in the world, we also don't compromise on either. We go into the world with grace, ready to offer forgiveness because we ourselves have been forgiven. Um, but we also go into the world saying that this is actually true, and truth matters. So 
we answer skeptics' questions in the spirit of Christ. Guys, I got to testify, that's hard sometimes. Because sometimes people are mean, sometimes people are rude, sometimes, frankly, people are dumb. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and the fleshy part of my nature wants to tell them that they're being dumb, okay? And I've succumbed to that. To, I'll, I'll be the first to confess. I've succumbed to that temptation in my own life. You know, lording my knowledge over people, okay? But that's not, that's not witnessing in the spirit of Christ. Witnessing in the spirit of Christ is balancing grace and truth, gentleness and respect. Um, a, a statement that's always stuck with me that I heard years and years ago from a Christian apologist he was talking about a proverb that he heard as a young man. And the proverb was, it's no use cutting off a man's nose and then asking him to smell a rose. And what I observe a lot of Christians doing, and I've, again, I'll confess, sometimes I've fallen into the same, same temptation. We so desperately want to win the fight. We so desperately want to win the argument that in the process, we cut off people's noses. <laughs> We're harsh. We're judgmental. We cut off people's noses, and then we say, oh, but, but Jesus really loves you. Jesus loves you so much that he, he actually died for you. And we're sending contrasting messages when we do that. We are, are sending a message of, of judgment and condemnation, and we're asking people to accept a message of grace and forgiveness. And it, just, it doesn't compute with people. It doesn't make sense to people. And so when we're advocating for Christ. We do this in the spirit of Christ. So those are my four points. Starts with our own discipleship. It's not optional. We need to be prepared. Thirdly, it's contextual. We need to listen to those who are asking the question. And then lastly, uh, we need to do this in the spirit of Christ. So that's all I got for you this morning. And I guess we'll see you again this afternoon.